0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: psalm 27 if you haven't already for those just joining us on these sunday nights we're going through a psalm a sunday Uh, we'll do uh, even psalm 119 in just one even though it could take several weeks on that one but the average psalm is about 12 verses the median psalms there's as many that are less than 12 verses as over 12 verses so most of them are very accessible psalm 27 is one of the more familiar ones when you get into the words it's a great one they all are but uh, it's got 14 verses And so the inscription reads that it's a Psalm of David. So about half the Psalms do trace back to King David, 73 say so in the inscriptions. The New Testament talks about two other unnamed ones as being of David. So it's 75 is your count there, which is pretty neat. you know, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And that's one of the things that God loved about him, that David's a man after my own heart, as w- what God said to Samuel about him. And I sometime did a study on uh, whether you, that showed up in the Psalms. And I noticed something. I, I, I don't know how much it will. You'll see it in Psalm 27, but you'll see it a little bit in here. More of the verses in the Psalms by David are directly addressed to the Lord, and then the other psalmists, when you put the other 75 together as a unit. He really was after God's own heart. Uh, You know, when we sing, He is Lord, David was singing, You are Lord. You know, he was personalizing it. And we'll talk a lot about personalizing uh, our love for the Lord. The Psalms are so wonderful. They cover a gamut of things. They're prayers turned into songs. Uh, It's prayer journals. Uh, You know, David uh, sometimes expresses frustration, sometimes joy. Many times he's preaching to himself. He pours out a frustrating situation and then just keeps on preaching to himself God's truth. And by the end of it, he's resolved to go out and face the problems of the day and our day have lots of problems really looking forward to starting in Ecclesiastes next Sunday, uh, because it just acknowledges life is hard. Solomon says life is hard, you know, uh, and without God doesn't make any sense at all, you know, but even for believers, life is hard. God gives us purpose. He gives us meaning uh, and he's watching and he wants to, you know, what he does is going to last forever. So join him in what he's doing, you know, uh, but uh, very honest. And I really appreciate that about uh, Ecclesiastes, but let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read this entire Psalm for us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Oh, and I love verse four. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Boy, you don't think about shepherds talking like that much. You don't think about athletic warriors uh, like they could defeat Goliath and later others, uh, you know, gather 200 Philistine foreskins and stuff like that. You don't think of kings and rulers of nations. But David said, you know what? Despite all those things I can do, even the great music that he made and stuff like that, this is the, what I want. I want one thing. I want to be with God. You know, I want to see him to behold the beauty of the Lord. And I just, every once in a while I've turned that into a prayer. Lord, I just want to Be with you, beholding your beauty. So excited about that. Verse five, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Have you ever faced circumstances? that are so tough and you just felt like you couldn't put your head up in public or whatever, your head was just down, you know, I sure have. What a great joy that uh, David said, because of God, my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me. I can look up even when, you know, some people see me and wag their finger or whatever, you know, oh, that's the one that did this or that or the other, you know, we can look up. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Again, verse 8, so good. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Isn't that good? Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Ooh. What a wonderful verse. We love our moms, we love our dads, but some people had a real hard experience with their moms and dads. Some didn't know them, some were abusive or uh, drunks or whatever, you know, just a real hard experience. When I think back at home and, um, you know, some told their children, you'll never amount to anything. You know, guys in prison sometimes have tattooed on them, born to lose. You know, I've talked to those guys there and seen those tattoos and stuff. but. David said, when my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. He'll be a father to the fatherless, as he promised to be. He'll, uh, and he says, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Whew, that's so good. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I I think that not only is that for what he can influence as king, but I think that's also what we're seeing in these Psalms regularly. The expectation of a good follower of Yahweh, a a Jewish follower of Yahweh was that in the future the righteous would inherit the earth, the wicked would not be there. and so a beautiful future expectation. I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we're getting into that section of Psalms where every few Psalms, that thought comes up again. Psalm 34, Psalm 37, the righteous will inherit the earth, the wicked will not be there. Um, and so one of the questions you have when you go through the Old Testament is, how come How come they don't talk more about heaven we know that right now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you know somebody that died knowing the Lord, they're in heaven with Jesus. Their spirit's there. Uh, yeah, we need too many people there, don't we? There's a lot of grief at the ones we've sent to the other side. But what does the Bible present as the final reality? Is it heaven without a body? No, it's having a new body, 1 Corinthians 15, to live on a new earth with a new Jerusalem. The best of the old earth without any sin. In this gloriously new creation in the new Genesis Jesus talked about you know we'll have new bodies to live on a new earth and in the Old Testament the psalmist expressed that same future David says man if this world is all there is this really stinks but I believe I'm gonna see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living so he's fast-forwarding to the final reality And so we are Jewish friends that know the Lord and, you know, anticipated what would happen at the very end. Uh, That's what the New Testament brings us to also. It all comes together uh, in the end. And so I'd like you to know that so you can talk, because every once in a while you're going to talk to somebody, well, how, how come Jews didn't think about heaven? What did they say? Goodness the Lord, land of the living, the righteous will inherit the earth. They're talking about future after this life. Job said it. We saw, I think, last week or the week before that. Job said, in my flesh I will see God. After this body's destroyed, in my flesh I'll see God. He'll be standing on the earth anticipating Revelation 19, Christ returning, and then setting up a rule. Pretty cool to think about. Verse 14, wait on the Lord. This is worth waiting for. So be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Well, I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through, but Psalm 27 kind of divides into two parts. Verses 1 through 6, David's testimony And then verses 7 through 14, his prayer mixed with testimony. So it's kind of in there as he talks like it is for us. And uh, so sometimes we're testifying and all of a sudden we we need a little more to happen, so we throw in a prayer, right? Uh, You've been good, God, but this is a tough situation. See me through, you know, that sort of thing. So verses 1 through 6, David's testimony. And verse 1 lets us know the source of David's strength, and it is Yahweh. Whenever you're reading in the Old Testament and see Lord capitalized by that, it's Yahweh uh, that um, was such a revered name among our Jewish friends that they wouldn't ever say Yahweh. But YHWH is exactly what's there in the Hebrews. That's why sometimes I remind you of that they would come to that and say, Adonai is my light and my salvation. Uh, So, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And then he says, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Now in verse one, there's two different words for uh, fear. You see the word fear there. You see the word afraid. But the first one that he uses, the word fear first is the worship type use of fear. The word yare, Y-A-R-E is how we'd say it in English. Yare appears over 300 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it is so wonderful. Now, I'm going to tell you something I'm going to share this coming Sunday with everybody. Uh, and that is, you know, um, the importance of the word fear, this fear, this, this reverence of God, this worship of God, this awe of God in what we call the poetic books. Somebody help me out. What are the poetic books? When we say the Bible's Old Testament poetic books, what do we mean? Job. Job. Psalm. Psalms. Psalms, yep. yeah. Proverbs. Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And the two men more responsible than anybody else for those being the poetic books are King David and his son Solomon. Uh, Job is a true story, I believe, and many of you do too, that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. But the reason it's in the Bible is because of Solomon's love for it and he gives it to us. You say, Danny, how does that relate to the word yare? Well, it's so interesting that um, people need wisdom for living. They need to know how to live. They need to know how to walk by faith in God. And fear, the fear of the Lord, is at the beginning of Proverbs in the poetic books, right? So the same word, Psalm 27 here, that David extolled and taught to Solomon and other sons that were listening and stuff. Uh, what does Proverbs 1, 7 says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? It's the beginning of knowledge. And it also says in those early chapters, the beginning of wisdom. So at the beginning of how to live life, there's God. There's understanding that He's God and we're not. There's reverencing Him. There's being in awe of Him. Well, Job 28, 28. So in the middle of Job, in this storm that he's experiencing, in this debate he's having with his friends, there's a great verse extolling the fear of God. In fact, let's go ahead and turn to Job 28, 28. So you can see... I mean, man, this is right in a smash in the middle of Job. Just, you know, his body's hurting and his friends are saying, come on, Job, what'd you do? <laughs> and Job is really struggling to hang on. He's saying, man, I wish God would show up so I could talk to him about these things. Then God shows up and asks Job questions and Job says, never mind, God. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad to have your presence. But Job 28, 28 Uh, Verse 27, God saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So... At the beginning of the Proverbs, when we're teaching children just to start out and serve the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. Here, Proverbs, uh, Job 28, 28, in the middle of life storms, in the middle of going through health troubles and everything else, Job's uh, you know, affirming that it's all about worshiping God, the fear of the Lord. And then um, the end of Ecclesiastes, right? The conclusion, when all has been talked about, and over and over again, he says it's vanity, It's vanity, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's just temporary. If you try to find, if you try through just seeking pleasure in life to find meaning, you're going to feel empty. If you try just through, uh, you know, the accumulation of money, you're going to be empty. If you try just through putting your name on the side of buildings because you got a lot of money and building up parks and other civic things, uh, you're going to be empty. Man, it's all vain apart from knowing the Lord. And he says at the end of Ecclesiastes, the end of life looking back, he says, the conclusion is this. Fear God, yare, yare God, and do what He says. Worship Him, reverence Him. So it's that, it's that acknowledgement forever that He is what we ain't. But that's what makes us significant is being you know, under Him and, and knowing Him. Do you notice that there's a relation between illumination and salvation? The Lord's my light and my salvation. He's shown the way. And I embraced it. And we think about how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. He uses the word of God to enlighten us to our need. And then in turning to God, we find salvation. The word afraid in the second part of it, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's a, uh, the word terror type of fear here. So on the one hand, because God is my light, my salvation, um, I'm not going to worship anybody else. I mean, I'm not going to worship any of the idols, the people do. Um, And then the second part, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be terrified of? You know. Well, there's a lot of things that we're terrified of, right? You know, as we go through life, Um, you know, there's, there's lots of things that make us, makes us anxious and makes us fearful. And David says, man, because I worship God, because I've got the fear of God, the Yare fear of God, I don't need to have a a terror toward everything else, anything else, you know, Um, you know, you look around and so many people are um, just caught up with, Anxiety, which is a type of fear, uh, worried about this, worried about that. And, um, you know, the, the, the more we get settled that our, uh, you know, the, the Yare, fear of God, the worship of God, the more it helps us deal with our anxiety, you know, and other things that come along. God is my stronghold, so I'm not scared of what people will do to me. Can you think of a passage where Jesus said something like that related to the proper kind of fear we're supposed to have?
0: Don't uh, fear man
1: who can only kill the body. Hey, that's our star of the day right over there. to Mike. We're making Mike work hard. We had him testify. Now he's sharing things. Let's turn to Matthew. Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. And yes, our beautiful and wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and this is, um, goes right along with what, you know, when Jesus says, you know, don't fear the one that can uh... kill your body you know fear the one that can throw your soul into hell but look how this passage kind of goes along with that matthew ten twenty six therefore do not fear them for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known whatever i tell you in the dark speak in the light what you hear in the ear preach on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body there it is but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell Um, I think about all the wonderful stories I've heard over the years of people like Lottie Moon, when she was a missionary in China. And uh, the rebellion happened that uh, was very against missionaries in her day. And um, some thugs got her and uh, were about to decapitate her with a sword. And um, uh, she she said, well, she said, I'm not afraid. They're like, why aren't you afraid? We're about to chop your head off. she quoted this kind of verse to them. um, And then I'm trying to get the exact uh, wording in my head. She said that she was one of the first ones to say, I am immortal until God says it's my time to go. And the one that was there and about to chop this missionary's head off, heard that and kind of trembled and put the sword down and left, you know, and Lottie Moon uh, survived that. She uh, so much loved the people of China. When she would get food in from the West, she'd give it to the people during that time of starvation and her fellow missionaries realized that she was so malnourished, they put her on a train or a a, a boat, yeah, a boat. Yeah, you need a boat to go over the ocean, don't you? Uh, Maybe not the one under France and stuff, but they put her on a boat and she was gonna go back to America to try to uh, get healed up, but she died uh, very underweight, you know, um, at, uh, um, when they pulled into Hong Kong, I believe she was already dead. So very sad. I'm glad you remember that story too. Light for our darkened minds, salvation for our lost souls, strength for our weak bodies. Do you like how those three things are all in that one verse? Light, which is represents, you know, getting our minds around truth, salvation for our souls that need saving, and strength for our weak bodies. Um So note the connection here with what really separates effective saints from mediocre ones, the courage that comes from knowing God is bigger than any situation I face, because that's what he's really getting at here. I don't need to be afraid of what men can do in circumstances when I serve God that's bigger than those things. And we just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Um, Now, what key word is in verse 1 at least uh, three times? (laughs) in fact it may be besides the letter the word the it may be the only word that's in there three times in English in verse 1 it's the little word my M-Y so let me encourage you to embrace the word my in verse 1 see what David's doing here this is the king of Israel and he's testifying the Lord isn't just the light, He's my light. He's not just the salvation, He's my salvation. He's not just the strength, He's the strength of my life. And I love that. And we've got to do that. We've got to personalize things. Um, the Christian that personalizes the promise of God wins. I don't know what they win, a close relationship with the Lord and being a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus Christ, but uh, this stuff is meant to be owned. It's my, he is my savior. He is my Lord. And several of these Psalms, he just busts into my a lot and says those things. Uh, and you can personalize that. He's my savior. He's my coach. He's my song. It was a personal faith and we want ours to be also. So we get all that out in verse one. And then, of course, David talks about this will help him gear up when the wicked come against him. He says in verse two, and even when an army encamp around him, uh, he shall not fear uh, because God is with him. And, And we just need that help. But let's skip on down to verse four, where David proclaims that the Lord is the deepest desire of David's heart. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Um, You think about this coming from people that don't get a lot done. David was a man of action who got a lot done. Uh, But here's a secret of David's uh, significance and his success is that relationship with the Lord, that that happened before he'd go out and fight the battles and that sort of thing. That would be an interesting study in the Bible, the words, one thing. For David, that one thing is being in God's house and worshiping him. And he certainly recognizes he could go to the temple and bring a sacrifice or the tabernacle and bring a sacrifice since the temple was built by his son Solomon. But... um, You know, uh, he anticipates being with the Lord forever, I believe. Um, Where's another place where the phrase one thing comes up? I'll narrow it down for you. Uh, The letters of Paul. Paul's got a great one thing statement, too. Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philippians. Let's find it in Philippians because that uh, I, I love that focus where one thing, I want to seek the Lord, and Paul's matches up pretty good with David's. And so we got to go to the book of Philippians and we've got to go into chapter 3. And we know that... Um, Paul, like uh, David, loved the Lord. Verse 12. Paul writes, so Philippians 3, verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected. And of course, this is the guy that wrote, In Christ we have a perfect status. You know, he understood that he had a perfect righteousness in Christ. But he's talking about uh, progressively, uh, you know, becoming more and more like Jesus, that the Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Paul understood that he was a work in progress. And so he says, not that I've already attained it. I'm not everything I want to be for the Lord yet. I'm not already perfect in that sense, the, the practical aspects of righteousness. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brother, and I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you put those together. It's pretty powerful. Paul said, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind in the old pagan days of me, and I'm straining forward to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He's talking about it relationally because we, those verses were earlier in the chapter three there, to know Christ, you know, I want to know Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ. David said, one thing I seek. I want to look at the Lord's beauty. I want to just be with Him. Um, anybody here ever watched the movie City Slickers a million years ago? It's an old movie now. Um, sometimes I talk about this with a young'un, you know, and they're like, huh? What? You know? Well, Cur- uh, Billy Crystal in the movie and his friends are city slickers. Um, And, yeah, they go to the dude ranch. That's the one. Yeah, remember that? They go to the dude ranch. And they're enamored by this cowboy named Curly. Now, he's bald as he can be, but he call him Curly, right? Uh, And they're sitting around the campfire. And Billy just wants to be like Curly. And he says, hey, Curly, what's the secret of it all? What's the secret of life, you know? And Curly looks at him and he says one thing. Now, I've watched the movie two or three times. I don't think Curly says what the one thing is after that. You know, so we're left with it. Billy's like, one thing, one thing. And well, here it is. Here it is. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, seeking forward the upward call in Christ. Uh, One thing I do, I want to seek the presence of the Lord in the house of the Lord to behold his beauty and to be more in love with him. Um, Before we move on, I just think, you know, we've got to get in our minds what eternal life is. So John seventeen three. How does Jesus define eternal life? Anybody know off the top of their head? John seventeen three. It's an open book test. You can, oh, okay. yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, Danny makes us work on that Sunday night. Yeah. John seventeen three. This is great because this is Jesus, and you might want to underline this uh, or um, circle the verse reference. Because we think in terms of eternal life as going to heaven when we die. And it is that. It is, uh, you know, all that's going to come in the future, new body on a new earth type thing. But uh, how does Jesus define it in, um, Margaret, can you read John 17, three,
0: And this is eternal life that they might know, thee, and and the only true God in Jesus Christ, that has.
1: Yeah. So we've got Jesus defining eternal life for us. We know that to believe in him is to gain eternal life. We know that from John 1.12, uh, that's John three sixteen. believe eternal life, right? John th- uh, 1 12 says that if you receive him, you become a child of God. So when you believe, when you receive, you become a child of God and you get eternal life. But what is eternal life? It is knowing God for the rest of your life now, having peace with him and an eternal relationship with him. So that's already started, hasn't it? You know, once you come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And it's key that Jesus told us how to think of eternal life, because most people think of it as a transaction. Uh, It means I've got hell insurance. I'll go to heaven instead of hell when I die. And we don't think it in terms of, man, uh, you know, Tomorrow, when I do my job as a uh, police officer, um, Jesus is gonna be there with me in a very real and tangible way. I've got a growing relationship with him. Uh, You know, when I go to the plant and there's all those tedious things happening there at the plant, you know, and the the, the monotony of the, the work, you know, I'm not there alone. The Lord is with me in a real and tangible way. And it's me carrying some of the scriptures I've learned along with them and meditating on it, thinking that through the day, taking the opportunities to do what Jesus would do if he was physically in the situation I'm in. And uh, that's true in the home. That's true in the school. It's true in the force. It's true in the plant and all those different places. It's not true when you go to Caesars other than to distribute tracts. <laughs> you know, okay, just just uh, move on, Danny, move on. Um, So I think before we leave verse 4, we just want to say, you know, to ask ourselves, is that true of me? When I think about the one thing in my life, James 1 says that the double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. And of course, we're only humans. We're prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. So we've all got to fight. And, and, and believe me, I think that's what David's doing here. This is the same David that did uh, mess up and have the affair uh, and, you know, and then had um, Uriah, uh, you know. We have to fight for our focus decision by decision. Uh, we've got to, you know, when, when we understand what the one thing is, we've got to fight for it daily, hourly, with every decision we make. And that's why you've heard me say the secret of victory in the Christian life Is saying yes to God, the Holy Spirit, one decision at a time, because there's always going to be, as we go through a day, uh, a cluttered, divided mind with things that distract us or a focused relationship with the Lord that's going to help us to say no when it matters to things that will mess us up, will mess us up. The second part is David's prayer. So he turns this deepest desire into prayer mixed with testimony. Um, And so that's verses 7 through 14. Here's something interesting. Notice how catchy it gets around verse 8. Um, So the word face connects verses 8 and 9. And the word abandon connects verses 9 and 10. We've already seen this as we've gone through the Psalms. Sometimes one of the... poetic devices they'll use is a verse connect or a word connectors like this. So look at this in verses eight with related, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Verse nine, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. And then the concept of abandonment connects verse nine and ten. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. So even if earthly relationships abandon me and think differently about me, the Lord will stay close to me. Can anybody um, remember uh, on Wednesday night, we're going through Hebrews. We haven't gotten to this verse yet, but can anybody remember uh, about where the verse is in Hebrews That the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's see if we can find it. It's in the later chapters. We're going to find it here together. So, what David asks is a true reality for every believer. And I'll give you a hint it's toward the end. You got it. Hey, Margaret gets a star of the day, also. That's right. I'm about to run out. We better. Yeah. Hebrews 13:5. I want to tell you something about this verse here. Um, so David was worried about it. He was worried about um, you know, his relationship with the Lord. And please don't abandon me, Lord. You know, um, and um, look what Hebrews 13:5 says. Um Let your conduct be without covenants. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so in that verse, and look what it says. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And what I really like about that is he combines um, kind of the thought that we started Psalm 27 with, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be terrified? And that kind of concept. Because the Lord is our helper. Now, here's what I want to teach you about Hebrews 13, 5. In the Greek language where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's an eightfold negative. So the way it appears in the Greek is, I will never, no never, not ever, no never, leave you or forsake you. Um, And that's what the Lord is to his people. I mean, we talk about eternal security. Well, there it is, you know. Uh, David lived in the days before the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what he's praying about, uh, you know, in in Psalm 27 there is is pouring his heart out to the Lord. We don't have to worry about in the same sense. Now, we want to keep short sin accounts with the Lord, like Brother Lamar used to say. Um, We want to, when we become aware of a sin, the Holy Spirit reveals something to us. We want to confess it and forsake it. But have you ever thought about the difference between King David and King Saul when they blew it and messed up? Um, When Saul sinned, his greatest concern, his one thing was, please don't take the kingdom from me. What does David say in Psalm 51, in his psalm of repentance after his terrible sin with Bathsheba and getting Uriah killed? Don't take your Holy Spirit Spirit from me. Saul says, I don't want to lose my kingdom, Lord. David says, I don't want to lose you, the king, in my heart and life, Lord. And in those days, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul but stuck with David. And it was that plea there, you know, he stuck with David, the Holy Spirit did. In the Old Testament, there wasn't the permanent indwelling that you and I have as children of God. And so we're in a day where he'll never leave us, nor forsake us, no never, which is pretty cool uh, to think about. Um, In verses 8 through 10, we see the importance of instructing ourselves on behalf of the Lord. Now, David's given us wonderful language here. And I, uh, as I got ready for tonight, was uh, so impressed with this afresh. We need to refresh ourselves, don't we, in what we already know. Uh, One time I preached a message, and the message was, time to get yourself another preacher. And it was from the Psalms, like this, because, uh, you know, David many times preaches to himself, and I wonder, do you preach to yourself? Do you take God's truth and preach it to yourself? So look how he's teaching himself to preach to himself here. Verse 8, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. So have you ever been just sitting at home uh, or had a few minutes and the Holy Spirit said, Hey, why don't you pick up your Bible and read a little bit? Um, what would you say? David pictures hearing God say, seek my face. And David says, I'll seek your face, O oh Lord. Here, hey, I'll do that. And I, I love these little tricks he's doing, kind of uh, these wonderful tricks to get us to think like that. Um, if that's what I meant by time to get another preacher. Faithful and fr- fruitful Christians preach God's truth to themselves. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I had, uh, I, I have some great friends, and hopefully you do as well. People that love you, they'll tell you the truth and stuff. And I I was fondly remembering a time uh, as a uh, young college graduate where I was having to throw myself a pity party and, uh, you know, down in the dumps and stuff like that. And a good friend of mine preached truth to me. You know, reminded me of what I already knew. You know, and reminded me of what I wanted to be about. He'd heard me say it a thousand times. What I want to be about. You know, and he was throwing those words back at me. You know, and David's reminding himself here. He's preaching. Uh, uh, so David's response to his own preaching: Lord, I will seek your face. Um, I know it's a little corny, but uh, say that out loud with me, Lord. I will seek your face. Let's do it again. Lord, I will seek your face. Tell the Lord that before you go to bed tonight. I want to seek your face, Lord. I want what you've got for me. Man, I know Satan's got a purpose and plan for me. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Lord, I want to seek your face. I want what you have for me. I want to take the opportunities you're giving me this week. Um, And so that's good stuff. Verse 10 is a tremendous verse. Um, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord cares for me. Think about what a wonderful verse that is for pro-life. When we think about, you know, uh, children that have felt unwanted, uh, orphans, uh, we're so thankful. The mom gave the child a future. The child wouldn't have otherwise had. And, um, I just get all weepy every time I hear this song. You may have seen me when we sing it every once in a while in church, He Knows My Name. Uh, and every once in a while I ask Eddie, throw that song back in. So if you get tired of that song, it, it's because Danny wanted it sung. And I was telling, um, I think Vicky and Margaret before uh, tonight that, um, One of the great things that some of these songwriters are doing now with these wonderful, useful songs, they're they're taking on an impact, you know, 10,000 Reasons and He Knows My Name and songs like that. And the authors sometimes are going back and writing just a little book that talks about what they were thinking when they wrote it and then some of the letters they've received uh, about that song uh, making impact. So uh, let me see here. did I put the words of that song in your notes? I thought I did, didn't I? Look at those notes. Here's what the song says. I have a maker. He formed my heart before even time began. My life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. And that second verse, it always gets me because I had a strange relationship with my father for years. In fact, I didn't know how to love my earthly father until I became a Christian and fell in love with my heavenly father. And he helped me have what can only be described as an intense, unconditional love for my earthly father. And we have a, a much better relationship now because he knows the father too, you know, and he has lots of regrets. And it's interesting looking at the generations how just the awful relationship my dad had with his dad and the titanically awful relationship my granddad had with my great-granddad and those things. And Christ changed all that, you know, gave me a love for my dad. You know, one of the things that Malachi said, man, when the Messiah comes, he'll... He'll put the hearts of the fathers back toward the sons and the sons back toward the fathers, you know, when when, when God's really at work. But look what it says. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. And then he goes back into that. He knows my name. I want to read a little story from the book that Tommy Walker wrote here. And um, this is by a fellow named Danny Cross. And in this little book, A Father to the Fatherless. He says, "'My parents divorced when I was four. Between the ages of five and 15, I saw my father a total of eight times, usually for five days. I saw him once when I was 27 and a final time when I was 29. As much as I wanted and needed a father, he chose not to be there. I cried like a baby at his funeral in 1994, not because I would miss him so much, but because of the finality that I would never have a father who was too, that was too overwhelming.'" Funny thing about my biological father, he never once came to see me. I always had to go see him, and he rarely said my name. The only time I can remember his saying my name was when he was manipulating me to see if I had any spending money for my visit. I would have given him all my spending money just to hear him call my name, just to hear him say, I love you. When I was nine years old, my mom remarried. To this day, I really don't understand why they married. They had little in common. But I lived in his house and I called him daddy. He called me boy or Helen's boy. That's my mom. I had a dog named Lad that he called son. He would sit with my dog on the porch and put his arm around Lad's neck and talk to him about his day and call him son. He never called me son. And from 68, when I first met him until 92, when he passed away, he never once, not even once, said my name. As a child, I would have given anything to hear him call my name. By the time I was a teen, I was so disillusioned with our relationship that I just avoided him just as he avoided me. Sometimes we would go six months living in the same house without seeing each other. To this very day, I have a difficult time maintaining close friendships with men. Because there was no men there for me when I was young, I suppose I carried that expectation into my own, my adult life. I struggle daily with feelings of inadequacy about my own abilities as a father. I have known this whole lack of a father thing was a sore point in my life, but I've never had it become as real and focused as it has become during this last year or so. A while back, a friend introduced me to a song that tore my heart open and made me face the pain I had never faced it before, as I had never faced it before. And yet, when the song broke me and the tears flowed, and I sobbed out loud, wanting to cry out, Please tell me you love me, Daddy. Suddenly, I felt as if the Holy Spirit put His arms around me. I began to sing and weep, but this time for the joy of realizing that I have a Father. He calls me His own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and He hears me when I call. It's a great song Tommy Walker wrote, but he's getting that idea from the scriptures and ones like the ones that we're looking at now. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And I don't know uh, if David had a strange relationship. He was the youngest, you know, of Uh, Jesse and Mrs. Jesse, you know, there and uh, seems, uh, you know, like the older boys were preferred. And David was out in the field when the March of Sons went by and God said, no, none of these. It's going to be David and things. Uh, We don't know if that strain continued on later, whether Jesse was proud of his son or not. He doesn't figure into the narrative a whole lot like that. But uh, David understood that he had a father that would care for him. So the linking words, right, forsake, abandon, Uh, even if my parents forsake me, you won't. Well, that brings us to verses 13 and 14. And he says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. What word occurs twice there in that very last verse? wait. The waiting's the hardest part, but verses 13 and 14, David's certainty that the Lord is worth the wait. He's like, I just know, I've already know God well enough to know he's worth the wait. It's going to be worth it one day when we get to see him. It's going to be worth it when he shows up, when he takes care of us in the midst of these struggles that we get ourselves into. Um, Now, In Psalm 23, what did David describe himself as walking through? The valley of the shadow of death, right? Here he talks about the land of the living, which is pretty cool. And we see a cool confidence here, confidence that God hasn't done with him yet, and confidence he's going to be with the Lord forever. Now, do some of you remember what I've taught you about chiasmus, chiastic structure, um, where there will be a thought, and... The end will have the same thought, and in the middle there will be a thought and it's kind of pointing toward the middle. And sometimes that is 20 verses long. Sometimes in a psalm like this, he just throws in a little flair a chiastic, and that's here in verse 14. Because what does it begin and end with? Wait on the Lord. When that happens, he's pointing you toward the thought in the middle. So why do we wait on the Lord? What is, the, what is he focusing this truth on, that part that's in the middle, that we can be of good courage because he'll strengthen our hearts. Um, now, we talked about sometimes things that are great to study. If I'm right, I think this is the first one of the for the Lord statements in the uh, Psalms. So we're already in Psalm 27 and we've covered a lot of territory already, but note how he says here, wait on the Lord or wait for the Lord. It's just a matter of translation and that would be a great study. And so I've given you something for you there, uh, on the back of your notes, that's a lot of work there. Uh, I didn't do all that work this week. Some of that's from years gone by, but, um, which occurs more in the Psalms, wait for the Lord or trust in the Lord. So trust in the Lord 12 times, wait for the Lord 6, and then we see things like hope in the Lord 5 times, rejoice in the Lord 4 times, sing to the Lord 11 times, how about that? Give thanks to the Lord 12 times, so trust and give thanks, right? Sing His praises. And then I said, well, wait a second, what if we add in the Lord, and I showed you all those, and then to the Lord, and added all those? And some of that may be dependent on the translation I studied it and I think it was New King James at the time. And that's what I'm going through on these Sunday nights. But uh, listen, there are a lot of things in life that tear us up, a lot of things that don't work out as they should. King David had a lot of hard experiences in his life, didn't he? Uh, he had some pretty cool things that happened. I mean, wouldn't you love to have the trophy on the wall, the feeder of Goliath, you know, pretty big things, you know. Uh, and yet, he understood there's a lot of aspects of life are hard. and But he understood also that he had a growing and vibrant relationship with the Lord. That's what he wanted to, the one thing he wanted to focus in on. And that uh, anybody that waits on the Lord and makes a godly decision rather than, a, you know, whatever else, they, they, they'll be okay in the end. They'll be okay in the end. So wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Let's pray.